in view of individually as a, a group of Christians in this church, but think of it also as churches, both in this nation and obviously much wider. You know, this is you know, what the Lord wishes of us, that we work together for the gospel, not that we do what we so often do, which is pull off in so many different directions because we, we like certain things and we prefer this and we don't like that. So it's a, it's a very powerful word, and we're going to come back to that. But the unity is very much a key part of it. And I just want to lead us in a prayer which really focuses on the times where we haven't maintained unity. And that can, as I say, be locally here. It can be wider amongst churches. It can be much wider than that as well. Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you blessed, your blessed Son asked that his church be one as you and he are one. But Christians have so often not been united as he prayed. <clears throat> we confess we have often isolated ourselves from each other. We have often failed to listen to one another. We've often misunderstood one another and ridiculed others, even going so far as to attack one another. Lord, we confess in doing so we have sinned against you we have sinned against our brothers and sisters in your church. We have sinned even against those who have not yet believed in you because of our shameful disunity. And on the screen behind me, in bold, if you could join me with these words. Forgive us, Father, and make us fully one. Forgive us our sins, renew our minds, rekindle our hearts, and guide us by your Holy Spirit into the oneness that is your will. Amen. And before we come back to the actual message this morning, we're going to stand and we're going to sing once more the song, Jesus Stand Amongst Us at the Meeting of Our Lives. We're going to stand to sing.
Do be seated. So John 17, quite a long passage that Ed kindly read for us this morning. So thank you, Ed. Um, and we are currently in a short sermon series uh, which uh, Brian Pollard actually came up with. He's on holiday at the moment, coming back, I think, this afternoon. Um, entitled The Prayers of Jesus. And this example of a prayer of Jesus is actually the longest example we have of a prayer for Jesus, the longest recorded example which John captures in chapter 17 of his gospel. Now it was a prayer prayed by Jesus late in his ministry and although the exact setting is not known, Christian tradition has often considered that it occurred probably at the end of the Last Supper even. So just before he maybe went out with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of his crucifixion. So it's a prayer prayed in dark times for Jesus knew the road that he must take for our sakes. The actual context of the prayer is actually set up by the last verse of the previous chapter. Chapter 16, obviously, before 17. Verse 33 says, I've told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but I have overcome this world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I have overcome this world. So though it is a prayer set on the eve, as it were, of a personal catastrophe, it is not the prayer of someone who is beaten or defeated by the world. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It is a prayer of our Lord looking through the suffering that he knows he has to go through to the eternal glory that stands beyond it. It is a victory prayer. It is not a prayer of defeat. It is a prayer of hope. It is a prayer of firm assurance. It is not a prayer of despair. Even though the immediate outlook is very dark, as it were. I'm just going to reread a couple of the opening verses. Jesus said, after he said this, which is actually that last verse of chapter 16, that he's overcome the world, he prays, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you've granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought, your, sorry, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I think it's worth pointing out that the first object of this prayer is God's glory. To God be the glory. No matter what events were going to occur in the following 24 hours, this prayer shows that Jesus sees himself as one who has overcome the world, not one who has been defeated by it. He was not a victim. He was, he is, and he ever will be the victor. And so knowing this, he wants to encourage his disciples with those words, take heart, I've overcome the world. And that word, the world, by the way, occurs 19 times in this prayer, just to emphasise the point. 
Take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus declares his victory even before it was fully realised by his followers. And that is an insight that we can take into our own lives of faith today. Knowing ourselves in him to be victors too, even in this life. Though this prayer was prayed maybe 2,000 years ago, or probably a little bit more now, it is one, I think, that remains fresh and vibrant to our ears today, just as it was to the disciples back then. He prayed then for all believers, so that all believers might know who he truly is, and all that he has made possible through his life, his death, and his resurrection for us. The progression of his thought through the prayer is quite easy to see. Jesus first of all prays for God's glory, to God be the glory, acknowledging that his work on earth was coming to a close. But then he prayed for his beloved disciples, that the Father will keep them, keep them safe, sanctify them, continue to make them holy while they continue to live out their lives in the world. And lastly, he closes his prayer with praying for you and for me. Praying for all believers, the whole church, past, present and future. And primarily what he prays is that the church might be one, just as the Son and the Father are one. He invites us into this holy communion, and we're going to share the Lord's table later on. He invites us into this holy communion, to this life of God, which we partake with, in Christ. So I'm going to really focus primarily on the two parts of the prayer, the one way he prays for his disciples and the one way he prays for all believers. But I just wanted to point out first and foremost what comes at the top of the prayer, which is God's glory. I shall need to do a click here as well. So bear with me. So I'm just going to, not because Ed didn't read it well, but I'm just going to reread it so you hear the word again. And um, he says, I've prayed, I've, sorry, I've revealed to those whom you gave me out of the world, I've revealed you to those you gave me out of the world, sorry. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty, they knew with certainty but I came from you, and they believed that you have sent me. I pray for them. I pray for them. He's praying for his friends. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me. For they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus specifically prays for the 11 disciples who had believed in him and followed him, who had trusted in his divine identity, his messianic mission of salvation for all who would simply put their trust in who he is, the Messiah, the Lord, the Redeemer, Trusting in his name. Now, names in the Bible are always very telling. Name isn't, we, we use names rather differently in our culture. But in the Bible, 
names tended to refer to someone's identity and you know their essence. Another word might be character, who they are. And they were given to reveal something about the nature of the person bearing the name. Examples are like, like Jacob, who's a bit of a schema. His name comes from the Hebrew root name, which means to take by the heel. In other words, to deceive or to trip up, to mislead. I've got a grandson called Jacob. He doesn't like that. <laughs> the name Isaac, for example, means laughter. You remember, because he brought joy to Abraham and Sarah when they thought they could never, never have a child. He brought joy to them. And even the name Jesus reveals that he is the saviour. The Lord saves. The Old Testament Jew knew God as Jehovah, the great I am. Jesus took that sacred name and through his life and work made it more accessible, more meaningful to his disciples so they could understand better maybe something more about God. Jesus said the I am sayings in John's Gospel, aren't they? I am the bread of life. You know, the, the, the sustenance of life. I am the light of the world. Um, I am the good shepherd. There's about a number of them, aren't there? Your point, thou's pointing, oh, they're around here. Oh, right. Okay, yeah, I could be more observant, couldn't I? <laughs> Thank you, Val. Jesus revealed more of the name of God, the character of God to his disciples by showing than that through his life and that he was the embodiment of God in that. He told them that they had been chosen and given to him by the Father, as it were, placed into his hands, as it were, into his loving care. So now at the end of his earthly mission, at the end of his earthly life, he wants to reassure his disciples that though he would no longer be with them physically, he, they would still remain in his care, protected by his name, by who he is, effectively. And the same remains true for us as believers right up to the present day, which is why we can take something written in the Old Testament, like Psalm 23, for example, that reads, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We can take that into our Christian faith today. The disciples were precious to God the Father and given, in a sense, as a love gift by the Father to the Son, for whom they remain eternally precious too, always the object of his loving protection. There's another psalm which I think can help us with this as well. Psalm 8, 17, verse 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Because of who Jesus is, both Saviour and Lord, we can trust in his loving protection in all situations, knowing ourselves to be the apple of his eye, trusting in his holy presence, even while we labour in this fallen world. He continues his prayer, Jesus says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them for it, for they're not of the world anymore, more, any more than I am of the world. So my prayer is, he says, not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the, the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. 
Jesus' prayer is that the disciples, though no longer possessed, as it were, by the world, claimed by the world, might remain in the world a while longer in order that others might hear and respond to God's message, the good news of God in Christ. But others might also respond to that word of God which always seeks to sanctify, to make holy those who simply receive it in faith and repentance. Jesus' prayer is not to take his followers out of the world, but that they might be kept safe within it. Not trial and tribulation free, but not on their own in difficulty either. Jesus promises to be with them in the whole of their lives, He never promises, though, to simply remove them from the difficulties they experience. The object of Jesus' life was that the Son might bring glory to the Father through seeking and saving the lost. And that remains true to all who seek to follow him right up to the present day. That our priority might be souls for the glory of God, rather than just looking to our own personal well-being and welfare. This prayer prayed for the 11 disciples is applicable, I think, also in many ways for us today. Although it's labelled up in the, in the Bible as a prayer for the disciples, there's much in there which I think does apply to us today. But Jesus then moves in the prayer on to pray for all who would come to know him personally through the faithful Christian witness of men, women and children. So Jesus prays now for the wider church. And he prays primarily that they might be one. My prayer is not for them alone, he says. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. But all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory you've given me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So here Jesus turns his attention to the future. He begins to pray for the whole church throughout all time, right up to the present day and beyond us, into the future life of the church, however long that might be. He's already prayed for the security of those who follow him. He's prayed for the the sanctity, the holiness of those who follow him, for their firm assurance as well. But the burden of this prayer now turns to that of unity. He passionately desires that the people of God experience a spiritual unity that is like the oneness that he experiences as a son of the Father. Now, Christians may belong to many different types of fellowship, but they all belong to the Lord and therefore to one another. The disciples in the scriptures often exhibited a spirit of selfishness, competition and disunity, which we sadly can do so today. But clearly Jesus, when they did so, was saddened by their behaviour. And what is the basis of Christian unity? Well, nothing less and nothing more than the person and the work of Jesus Christ and the glory of God. 
All true believers have God's glory within them, no matter what they might look like on the outside. Christian harmony is not based on the externals of the flesh, but the internals and the eternals of the spirit in the soul. We must look beyond the elements of our first births, which are to things like social class or race or colour or gender or abilities, and build our fellowship in Christ on the essentials of our birth in Christ, which are so very, very different. Verse 22, Jesus tells us we already possess something of his glory within us by faith. And he assures us one day we will behold his full glory in heaven. As we grow in the Lord, that glory within us begins to grow too and to reveal itself in all we say and do. This is not so that people can see us and exalt us, but that they might see our Lord and our God and exalt him. One of the things that can most impress the world is when Christians love one another with integrity. Where that love is expressed, costly love. It has a price tag attached to it. It is a witness, sometimes a wordless witness, that others see and take real note of. And it's that witness that our Lord wants in the world amongst his people so that the world might believe that he is sent by God. The world cannot see God, but they can see Christians. And what they see shapes what they believe about God and about the Christian God. If they see love and unity and service, they will believe that God is love. But if they see hatred, division and selfishness, They will just see a bunch of hypocrites and reject the gospel message that is good news to all. Jesus, in verse 20, assures us that some will believe because of our witness. But we must make sure our witness is real, that it has integrity, that we always speak the truth with love. Some Christians sometimes can seem more like lawyers and judges than faithful witness witnesses of the good news there are so many reasons for the sake of Jesus Christ why our believers why we, you and I should live together in unity we trust the same saviour we share the same glory and one day we will share the same home in heaven with our Lord we belong to the same father we belong to the same son and we should seek to do the same work witnessing to the world that Jesus Christ can alone save from the power of death and sin. We believe the same truth, that Jesus is Lord, even though we might have different doctrinal views on certain matters. At the end of the day, we all follow to fo- seek to follow the same Jesus who calls his disciples out to take up their cross and follow him. So yes, believers, Christians, had their differences. To me, that's always been part of the wonder of the church, that so many different people can actually go in one direction. We have so much in common, and we must remember how much we have in common and put aside the things that divide us. So as we look at this prayer of Jesus, finally, just to close... Okay, clicker. 
No, don't worry, it's only a slide. Oh, thank you, Ian. If we look at that prayer of Jesus, we can see the spiritual priorities that were on Jesus' heart. The first thing was always, always the glory of God. The second thing is primarily the sanctity of his people, of God's people. And lastly, but by no means least, the unity of the spirit in the church. In this, nothing has changed. And in our time, we will be wise to focus on the same priorities. The glory of God, the sanctity of our own lives, and the unity of the spirit in the church. For the last two verses, Jesus closes his prayer with these encouraging and comforting words. So this is Jesus praying to the Father. There's nothing between him and the Father. He and the Father are one. And he says to the Father, Father, I want those you've given me to be with me. Amazing words. I want those you've given me to be with me. Not somewhere else or not. I want them to be with me. I want them to be where I am, he says. Again, not, you know, you can be down the road, but you can't be in here, you know. And I want them to see my glory. I want them to see the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, he says, though the world doesn't know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I've made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known to them in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. What a wonderful word, what a wonderful hope we share together in Christ. Jesus prays for the church. He prays for all believers. He wants us all to be with him, to see him in the fullness of his glory and to know him as the one who has overcome and who therefore can realise this glorious destiny in each one of us as we place our trust in him. But while we wait and while we long for this future hope, we do have a work to do right here, right now. A work which Jesus promises to continue to make his love known in us and through us to others. A love that will continue to shape our little lives for the glory of God. We have one life to live in this world. We have one love to give, namely the love of Jesus. Might we do so together. In his name. Amen.